folks! Welcome to Come and Play, a geeky, kinky podcast. Come and Play explores all things sex toys, kink, feminism, geek life, and gaming culture. My name is Elia Winters, and I'm an erotic romance novelist. In addition to this podcast, I also run a blog at eliawinters.com. I want to talk to you today about a couple of interesting syndromes, or conditions, or whatever, that have nothing to do with each other, except that I have both of them. And I was thinking about podcast topics, and I thought, hey, I have some interesting knowledge about these things, and that knowledge fits in with the theme of geekiness. And because if you're like me, you're into cool stuff, uh, I hope that's why you're listening to this podcast. So I thought this would be kind of a cool topic to talk about today. Before I get into talking all about bondage, which was in the title of the episode, and which you're also probably really excited to hear about. First, I want to start with the more annoying, less pleasant condition, and that is misophonia. Misophonia is the hatred of certain sounds. It's also called selective sound sensitivity syndrome, and hopefully, if you have it, you aren't sensitive to the letter S because that would be really annoying. If certain sounds make you ragey, you might have misophonia. The trigger sounds are often mouth sounds. Sounds like eating, drinking, chewing, loud breathing. These are all candidates. People with misophonia have strong, overwhelming emotional reactions to their trigger sounds. And for a long time, this wasn't considered a real medical ailment. But then a team at Newcastle University in the UK showed that there are legitimate differences in the frontal lobe of misophonia sufferers versus those who don't have it. The research implies that there's an abnormality in the emotional control mechanism of people with misophonia. So when they hear trigger sounds, their emotions go into overdrive. The way misophonia generally manifests for me is that I get rage stabby when I hear certain sounds. The most common one has to do with food. Loud food chewing annoys me, especially someone eating an apple or a carrot, like a juicy or crunchy food. The slurp noise when someone is trying to get the juice out of a bit of fruit, that's some prime anger inducing noise right there. But a ton of my triggers aren't eating related at all. A spoon on plastic, especially thin plastic like a yogurt container, that's a huge one for me. It's not the sound of someone eating the yogurt. It's someone scraping the plastic with a spoon. I almost can't say it without hearing it in my head. And when somebody's doing that, I just want to be like, you're done. There's no more yogurt. Stop trying to get more yogurt out of this container. Soda slurping, interestingly enough, doesn't bother me very much. But ice clinking in a glass, that's annoying. Last road trip, the ice was shifting in the cooler back and forth, and I actually had to get off at an exit to adjust it because I was going fucking insane. It's just illogical, impotent rage. And I don't have an anger problem, I swear. This is just sounds. Styrofoam rubbing against plastic is also terrible. That squeak it makes... I don't know if that's misophonia or if that's just normal because it's a horrible sound. Styrofoam rubbing on itself is complete shit. If I get takeout from a restaurant, I can't stack 
the styrofoam containers on top of each other because if they shift at all, that's going to be a complete nightmare for me. Even when it doesn't squeak, it makes a noise that I can feel inside my teeth. Nails on a chalkboard, which people usually describe as the worst sound ever, that doesn't really bother me, even though that's a sound that most people hate. Our local theater, Cinemark, which I think is owned by Rave, or Rave is owned by Cinemark. I can't keep them straight. But our Cinemark has a new pre-show ad for their concession stand. And it is literally a giant close-up of the snacks being prepared, like cartoon style, with sound. So there's popcorn popping and filling the screen. And then the popcorn disappears and there's the loud clinking of ice falling into a glass. And then the liquid, the soda being poured and all the annoying shitty glug glug of the soda filling up the screen. And then the sucking the soda down sounds and the slurp at the bottom. I literally have to take deep breaths and white knuckle my movie seat through the entire thing. I've been paying attention lately to which sounds really annoy me as I've been preparing for this podcast. Crunching is pretty annoying, but the crinkle of the chip bag is really obnoxious. Similarly, the thin plastic crackle sound when someone's holding a really cheap disposable water bottle, that crinkly sound is going to bug the shit out of me. If you hold it firmly, it makes that like that crinkling sound as you squeeze it. Yeah, keep that far away from me, thanks. Let's see what else. Oh, people popping their gum. Instant rage. I also hate the sounds of people swallowing. Just, just swallowing. Now, for the most part, these are normal human sounds. Some are rude, like popping gum. But most are the normal noises of eating something. I try to keep in mind... The misophonia is, by its very nature, irrational. And I also try to remember that it isn't another person's job to eat more quietly, especially when they aren't making loud, rude noises by normal societal standards. It's my responsibility to keep my crazy under control. Sometimes it's difficult. I like to let the people in my life know about it, not like while they're actually eating, but some other neutral time. I also let them know that I know it's my responsibility to watch it, not theirs. But if I ever seem irritable, they should know that I might be working through that. It's like if I was a vegan, I don't get the right to tell other people not to eat meat in the same room as me. And so as a sufferer with misophonia, I don't get to tell other people not to eat at all. I let my students know about it this year too. I don't mind if they eat in my classroom as long as they clean up after themselves. Since they're eating in there, though, it's helpful if they know that certain sounds make me generally more hostile than others. They think it's interesting. So far, no kids have brought in foods purposefully to annoy me. If you're another person with misophonia currently listening to this podcast, please send me an email about your triggers. I'll share them and we can all suffer together. I know I'm missing some of my own, but I can't remember all of them until I hear them. And then I'm like, why do I feel like punching something? Oh, right. This particular sound is happening. And it kind of turns me into a bitch. But I swear, I, I keep it in check. Mostly.
The other syndrome or condition or whatever that I want to talk about today is much more pleasant. And that is synesthesia. Synesthesia means a mixing of the senses. It has a lot of different forms. But basically, it's when the experiences of one sense cause reactions in unrelated senses. The most common form of synesthesia is grapheme color. This means that numbers and letters have colors associated with them, and those colors are consistent over time for the person with that kind of synesthesia. There are a lot of other types of synesthesia too. Music color is one type where when you hear music, you see colors. There's a lot of association with color. That's pretty common. I don't have music color, but I had a student once who was a musician who had this form of synesthesia. I have grapheme color, and I also have spatial sequence, which is sometimes called number form synesthesia. That means that certain predictable patterns, like number sequences, days of the week, months of the year, those have physical locations in space when I picture them. They exist in physical relationship to each other. So like the numbers 1 to 10 are vertical, and from 11 to 20, they're situated along a slight diagonal going up and to the right. To see past 20, I have to like move myself farther along the number line. 20 to 25 are mostly horizontal, but 26 to 30, they're at a much steeper upward diagonal. All the patterns have this sort of arrangement, and many of them have colors. Like my months have colors. September's blue, October's black, just to name a few. And those feel really easy and obvious. Some of them feel easy and obvious. January is gray, February is pink, March is green. But those are pretty close to holidays or to the weather. April is light blue. May is crimson. June is yellow, July orange, August red. I already did September and October. November is brown and December is green. Those feel like really obvious to me. Like, of course, the months are those colors. Um, because it's associated with certain holidays, but not all of them are. Like maybe September's blue because of the birthstone. These are really strong associations. When I picture that month, it's that color. Sometimes calendars put the months in color, and the months are almost always the wrong color, and it makes me really uncomfortable. I've always perceived the world in this way. I didn't realize it wasn't something that everybody did. I do remember once seeing an alphabet displayed on a wall, like in an elementary classroom when I was little, and thinking that the colors were wrong, but I didn't dwell on it much. And synesthetes do obviously see things differently, but there are some commonalities, like most of us see A as red. A for apple is a common way that A is taught, sure. And the studies of synesthesia show that common letters tend to have common colors, and uncommon letters have uncommon colors. And that makes sense to me. Like my E, which is a really common letter, is blue. But K, which is less common, is sort of a rusty orange-red color. Saturation is often influenced by frequency for synesthetes. When you see a letter a lot, it has a stronger color in your mind a lot of the time. I first learned that synesthesia was a thing when I was in my mid-twenties. 
I was proctoring a practice MCAS test. MCAS is the Massachusetts state test for students. One of the articles that the students had to read and analyze was called, For Some Pain is Orange, or something like that. And I had nothing to do while proctoring, so I started reading the test booklet. And I was like, holy shit, this is what I have. And it was also a realization that this was worthy of an article, like that not everyone saw the world that way. And I was blown away. As soon as the test was done, I talked to my students and was like, hey, I have this. I had no idea that my perspective was uncommon. I thought it was just something that happened to most people. Like that's how people interpret the world. One of the rarest crossover senses is taste, but there are synesthetes who experience tastes when they hear music or see colors or use some other sense. Phantom tastes, that's really cool. Textures too, letters, numbers, months, they might have specific tactile sensations to people. And some people personify numbers and letters, like an A might be grumpy or a five might be friendly. I don't have these types of synesthesia, so I can't relate, but I really think it's interesting. One of the most interesting synesthesia things, at least to me, is that I have orgasm color synesthesia. Not even colors. Like, it doesn't really have a name, but some people refer to it as orgasm color. I see abstract patterns when I approach orgasm and when I actually come. Generally, I'm not aware that it's happening while it's getting close. I'm focused on the sensations and the impending orgasm. I'm not focused on patterns or what I'm picturing in my mind's eye. But I generally see these patterns and they shift and move as I get closer to the peak. Usually like I'm physically moving through space toward them. So like my vision is zooming in on the pattern. And after I come, I become more conscious of what I saw, like I can reflect on it. In the moment, though, I have other things on my mind. And even if I'm trying to focus on it, it's like I get distracted and it's just there, but I can't really focus on it. I've seen patterns like crystals and skyscrapers and boxes. Things a lot like what you might see on a computer screensaver. That's probably the most common type of visualization for me. Sometimes they're in color and sometimes they're in black and white. It's really neat. There isn't a lot of research on the internet about synesthesia and orgasm, probably because there aren't a lot of people studying orgasms anymore, whatever losers, but I think it's pretty awesome myself. I'm part of this email service called Harrow, which stands for help or reporter out, and they email you a few times a day with collections from different reporters who are looking to interview people on a bunch of subjects. It's really cool. It's free to be part of it, and you can often get into various articles if you have an expertise on a subject. It's how I've made it into a few articles recently. Recently, one of the articles was looking for people who have orgasm color synesthesia, and I wrote back and was like, hey, I have this, but I haven't heard anything yet. Sometimes they wait a long time to get back to me. They might be writing like an evergreen article, like it's going to come out sometime, but they don't have a specific fast deadline. Or maybe they're waiting to hear back from a specific number of people to see if they can even write the article in the first place. But I hope that I get interviewed because I'd love to know more about this thing since it's really pretty freaking cool. If you're a synesthete, I would love you to email me. Tell me about your synesthesia. 
Let me know what types you have, and I'll talk about it on a future podcast. Folks, it is almost October. This means that pumpkin spice lattes are back for all of my white girl needs, and there are actual pumpkins waiting to be carved, and we are rolling in on one of my all-time favorite holidays, Halloween. I have always loved Halloween. It happens in my favorite time of year, first of all, and it involves costumes, which I also love. I've done some really cool costumes. Last year, I desaturated myself and went as a silent film star in black and white. I used grayscale makeup all over my skin and I wore a gray and black dress. It was very convincing. People liked it a lot. I wore it to school and my students were really distracted by how disorienting it was. I'm not sure what I'm going to be this year, but I'm going to have to think about it because it's like only a month away. One thing that's really exciting about October is the return of Stranger Things. Stranger Things was such a great show. My husband and I binged it not too long after it first came out. I don't like horror at all, but Stranger Things didn't feel like horror because there was so much 80s nostalgia mixed in. It captured the feelings of the 80s really well. The Goonies feeling. The acting was wonderful, especially by the kids. I'm so excited for season two. Well, I'm excited and scared. The thing about bringing in a second season of something that everybody likes is there's a big chance to fuck it up. Don't fuck it up, showrunners. I want to believe. You know, like the X-Files quote. I think that's enough of the geeky stuff. Now... On to the kinky stuff. You should know that I have written to Primal Hardware about trying an ovipositor dildo. The people have spoken, and they have said, fuck an egg-laying dildo. I don't know if Primal Hardware is going to approve me as a reviewer yet. They get a lot of requests. Granted, though, I think I'm pretty awesome, so I'm hoping they check out my blog and this podcast and agree that I am pretty awesome. If they do, then the Halloween episode of Come and Play will be about this ovipositor dildo. I have never laid eggs, podcast listeners, and all of that might change in the coming weeks. Stay tuned. As I polled some of my kinky friends for podcast topics, someone pointed out that I haven't actually talked about bondage in this podcast. And that seems crazy to me. But as I look back through my transcripts, I'm pretty sure they're right. And I don't even know how that's possible because I love bondage. So that's what I'm going to talk about with you today. When I was first getting started in bondage, I did what most people do. I got a pair of handcuffs. The cheap, shitty kind with the little tab for an emergency release. I used to play with them alone. I could always get out of them, obviously. When I thought, hey, I might want to actually do this stuff with my partner, I went to the local sex shop, which at the time was called Intimacies to buy a better pair of handcuffs. I went and I was looking at the bondage equipment and feeling totally intimidated. And then this absolutely adorable clerk comes up to me and asks if I want to get the handcuffs that I'm currently holding. And when she saw my uncertainty, she did what a good clerk should do and asked some follow-up questions. I didn't really care if it was handcuffs. It's just that handcuffs were all I knew for bondage. And she says, listen, handcuffs are really only good if you're doing a police fantasy or if you like them to be really uncomfortable. 
They're going to leave bruises on your wrists and they cut into your skin if you struggle and struggling is half the fun. She then makes a recommendation of these Velcro cuffs. Each one was a separate cuff and they were Velcro closure, like I said, but then they had a long strap of webbing that you'd wrap around the cuff and through a little buckle to secure them. That extra long webbing strap was to attach the cuffs together or to a bedpost or some other surface. So she asks if she can show me how they work. And I hold out my wrist and she secures one cuff and then takes the other end of the webbing like a leash. And she says, these are great because you can tie it high or low or anywhere. And as she says this, she's pulling my wrist up and then she pulls it down and then she pulls it over to the side. And I suddenly am so fucking turned on and embarrassed and blushy. Now, mind you, this is before I had accepted the fact that I'm bisexual. So I did not have a good framework to explore the feelings that I was wrestling with. I had never thought about girls like that consciously. And suddenly it was, oh my God, she's cute and she has my wrist by a strap. I would have fucking bought anything that she tried to sell me that day. And I definitely bought those Velcro cuffs, even though they were like three times as much money as I originally wanted to spend. So I bought them and they were really fun. They took a while to put on, but that's part of the fun of cuffs. I've since graduated to leather cuffs, by the way, nice black leather ones with purple faux fur lining, and they're locally made. They have a bright, shiny silver buckle. They're really nice. I love them. I have two sets, one for wrists and one for ankles. If you don't have a headboard and footboard on your bed that makes a good anchor point, or like me, you don't have a headboard and footboard at all, you can still tie your partner to the bed. Companies make under-the-bed restraint systems. One of the most common ones is by Sport Sheets, I think. It's a big X that you put under your mattress, and the ends peek out at the far corners with O-rings that you can clip cuffs to. It also comes with four Velcro cuffs, but any cuff that has a dog bone clip will work, or a D-ring where you can attach a dog bone clip or a carabiner to it. There are lots of ways to restrain someone. The cuffs that I've been talking about are just one type of restraint. Velcro or leather cuffs are going to be comfortable for the person who's wearing them, unlike metal handcuffs. There are metal cuffs that feel more comfortable, like manacles. I mean, it's still going to feel like metal, but if it's broader than skinny handcuffs, it probably isn't going to cut your skin. I don't have any metal cuffs, I guess manacles, but there's this one pair that I think are gorgeous. They're called steel cross handcuffs, and they look like two rings vertically interlocked. So if you see them from above, they look like a cross. They are gorgeous, and I want them. Another classic way to restrain someone is through rope. Rope bondage, especially decorative rope bondage, is called shibari. Now, shibari isn't just where you wrap somebody's wrists and tie a square knot, okay? Shibari is more complex and lovely. You can learn about rope bondage in a lot of ways, from books, from YouTube videos, or from workshops and live demonstrations. You probably should not try and learn rope bondage from this podcast. Pick something with a visual component, but I'm going to talk about some basics anyway. Before I go anywhere, I want to talk about safety. No matter what you are doing with bondage, have an escape plan. If you're using rope or doing any kind of tying, have EMT shears nearby. 
These are the kind with the flat blade so you don't cut the skin while you're cutting the rope. If you're using metal cuffs with a key, have more than one key. Know where the extra key is. Have bolt cutters that can take care of your lock for you in the event of an emergency. Don't ever leave someone alone while they're in bondage. Watch out for anything that might cause choking or restrict breathing. If you're using a gag with someone in bondage, make sure it's the kind of gag you can easily get air through. Lots of ball gags have holes in them for safety, or you can use an O-ring gag or a spider gag. Even a bit gag will let you breathe around it. You don't want someone to suffocate because their nose suddenly clogs up in the middle of play. If you're using a gag and bondage, make sure you have a silent safe word with your partner. This might happen in a few ways. They might hold a bell or another object that'll make a noise if they drop it. Or you can decide that any noise made three times in a row is a safe word. So there are lots of ways to be creative about that. That's good for now. I'm going to talk about some more safety stuff as soon as it becomes relevant as I talk about rope. There are different types of rope you can use for rope bondage, and they're all going to have different strengths and weaknesses. I brushed up on my own knowledge at ropeconnections.com for this podcast, but you can find all this info online on your own too. Braided cotton rope, which is just like clothesline that you get at the dollar store or the grocery store, is cheap and it's washable. It's got good friction. They call it tooth, is the ability for it to hold knots. So the knots you're going to tie are going to stay tied. But that's the downside of it. Your knots are very prone to tightening under stress. You shouldn't use cotton rope for suspension because it's not very strong. If you're getting your rope information from me, you shouldn't be doing suspension at all for that matter. You should wait until you learn how from somebody who's a rigger. Then there's P-cord, parachute cord, polypropylene cord. It's synthetic, not cotton. If you put a flame to it, it's going to melt. P-cord is generally synthetic webbing wrapped around some kind of core. It's slick, so it doesn't have much tooth. So it's not going to hold knots very well. That's not a terrible thing. You aren't going to get knots that you can't untie with this kind of rope. You can use it with the core, or you can remove the core. You can slide it out. If you remove the core, it lays pretty flat on your skin, which means it's not going to dig in as much. This is often a really thin rope, so it's likely to cut into the skin if you're not careful. You can also get synthetic polypropylene rope that's braided without a core. This is a utility rope, so when you buy it at Home Depot or whatever, the package will often say how much load it'll take. (laughs) There's a sex joke here about taking loads. Yeah, how much load it's going to take. This rope is pretty utilitarian and all-purpose, and you can get it in thicker widths so it won't cut into the skin as much. Nylon rope is another synthetic rope option. Lots of riggers like nylon for bondage rope. It's slick and smooth, and because of the way it's put together, the marks it leaves on your skin are different from other types of rope. It's pretty durable, since it's often used for boats and for outdoor ties. Like all synthetic ropes, it's slippery. It doesn't have much tooth, so it's not going to hold hitches as well. You're going to have to use and no knots. Now moving into natural fiber. Well, cotton's a natural fiber, but moving back into natural fiber. Hemp 
is one of the more popular bonded tropes. Many riggers prefer natural fibers over synthetic, but your mileage may vary. You shouldn't use hemp rope right away on the skin. It needs to be treated first. There are a number of companies online that sell treated hemp rope, and if you're buying it from someone who does bondage stuff, mostly it's going to be treated before you get it. The process of treating it is very involved. It requires a lot of washing, drying, oiling. Hemp is really strong. It's good for shibari. You can use it for suspensions if you know what you're doing, and it's very pretty. It's also fairly pricey. Jute rope. J-U-T-E, is also very popular. Like hemp, it's expensive. Jute rope comes in a variety of different lays. Lay refers to how the fibers are twisted together to make the actual rope. If it's got a tight lay, it'll be strong, but you'll need to break it in so it won't be so stiff. I, I, I can barely handle saying things like a tight lay and breaking it in so it's not so stiff. Like, this is really testing me to not be a complete pervert. But I'm a complete pervert, guys. That's why you listen. Yeah, you got to break in your jute, but nobody minds breaking in bondage rope. Jute's a favorite for a lot of riggers because the more you use it, the better it gets instead of the opposite. It's responsive. It's really aesthetically pleasing. So you've picked up some rope. What do you do with it? Well, the short answer is anything you and your partner want to do. You don't have to know elaborate rope strategies to be able to effectively tie somebody up. However, you can tie someone up a lot more efficiently if you do learn some of those rope techniques. Regardless of what you do, there are a few safety tips to keep in mind other than the ones I brought up earlier. Don't tie up joints. Tie above and below knees, elbows, etc., but not directly on them. People are often worried about cutting off circulation, but nerve damage is a more serious concern. If you have any pain, that's a big red flag. But another great strategy is to have the rope bottom squeeze the top's hand as hard as they can when you're first beginning play, and then do the same thing throughout the session. If they lose their ability to squeeze, that might be nerve compression, and you should let them out immediately. You also should check to make sure you aren't cutting off circulation. If the rope bottom is feeling tingling in any of their appendages, that's a warning sign. Tingling or numbness can be problematic, and you should deal with them right away. There's going to be a natural bit of stiffness from being in the same position, so don't leave someone in the same position for too long. If you're the rope top, be aware of how long you've had someone in bondage. If you're the rope bottom, communicate any discomfort. This isn't about being good for your dom. It's about physical safety and your ability to play again another day. When you are tying someone, make sure you can slide a finger between the rope and their skin. Don't have it so tight that you can't do this. You can still tie someone so they can't get away without having the rope pressing in deeply enough that you might hurt them. If you don't know what you're doing, don't suspend someone. Don't tie someone's neck. Basic common sense things, I would imagine. There are a lot of riggers who will use the neck, and you can learn to tie the neck safely. The trick is that the pressure should be pulling against the back of the neck, not pushing against the throat. So if you're like pulling someone's head down, that's uncomfortable but safe 
versus if you're using a hog tie, you're not going to attach that to somebody's neck where if they drop their head, they choke themselves. Now you've got somebody safely tied up. There are so many fun things to do with them. Impact play is classic. Sensation play, ice, hot wax, both wonderful bondage additions. Sex is another popular option. Certain positions are more conducive to sex than others. I have a book literally called Bondage for Sex, which I got when I was doing research for playing naughty. And it's all about positions in which you can tie someone and then fuck them. I recommend that book quite a bit. Bondage for Sex. I mean, I recommend playing naughty also because I'm really proud of it and I wrote it. But Bondage for Sex is very helpful. If you're fucking someone who's tied up, you have to do a lot of the work, but that's part of the fun. Being fucked while tied up is excellent. It's one of my favorite things. I have a hard time coming that way, but I haven't been fucked like that since back when I couldn't come without clit stimulation. So maybe that's a new possibility for me. We'll find out eventually. Whatever you do with rope, make sure that you are risk aware and consensual with your kink. That's rack, risk aware, consensual kink. People talk about SSC, safe, sane, and consensual with BDSM, but safe is such a relative term. Any sort of kink play, not every sort, a lot of kinds of kink play are inherently risky. So risk aware means you know what could go wrong with what you're doing and you and your partner are both okay with that and you're educated enough to make it intelligent and you're educated enough to be smart with what you're doing. So practice risk aware, consensual kink, have a great time and write to me and tell me all about your explorations. That's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to be back in a couple weeks with something new. In the meantime, please write a review and recommend this podcast to your friends. It would be very cool of you. You can also support me and this podcast at patreon.com slash Winters, where I've got some cool rewards available. Like I said, I love hearing from you. If you have misophonia, if you're a synesthete, if you just want to talk about how much you love Stranger Things, or if you've got questions about sex toys, kink, tying people up, my books, anything like that, send me an email at commonplaypodcast at gmail.com. Tell me what's on your mind. I'll also take suggestions for future episodes. Let me know what you want to hear, and I'll do my best to oblige. Thanks for tuning in. As always, stay geeky and kinky. Come and Play Podcast is produced by Elia Winters. Like Elia, the theme music is so easy. It's by Jazzar, who's being used under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike license. Check out more about Jazzar on betterwithmusic.com.